and this is my story. This past May, I took a leap of faith and went to Haiti with Lakeland and Global Orphan Project. There are so many things that I could share about the good work of the organization, the wonderful kids that I got to hold and love for the couple of days, and the relationships that I built. However, I'm going to share with you what I've been wrestling with since returning, about the issues of poverty, inequality, guilt, and blessings. As I witnessed the poverty in Haiti firsthand, I struggled with the obvious differences between how I live and how Haitians live. As a suburban American, I live with paved roads, trash removal, running water, electricity, easy access to medical care, and enough money to meet my needs, plus a lot of my wants. The vast majority of the Haitian people I saw did not enjoy such amenities. A lot of us on the trip asked, why was I blessed to live in America with such luxury when others live in such poverty? It's just not fair. And here then enters the guilt, the guilt that I have been blessed, that my life is more comfortable, that I have more stuff, which makes my life aesthetic and fun and entertaining and better than theirs. Then God started, started revealing something to me. I was pitying them for not having what I have. I was, in a sense, blaming God for dealing them less. But wait a minute. What makes me think that my life is better than theirs? What makes me think that the people of Haiti think of themselves as being less blessed just because they don't have as much stuff and they have to live like that? What made me think that my pity was helpful or even loving? We all grow up with different experiences that shape us. When I was seven, my parents divorced. My mom and I moved around a lot through my elementary years, so I ended up going through six different school transitions. And people often said to me, oh, that must have been so hard. And they were always shocked when I replied, not really. That was just my normal. That's what I did. My parents were amiable, and I spent a lot of time with both of them. And pity wasn't helpful to me. Others said I was missing out, but I have been blessed. I think, by having two great bonus families in my life after my parents both remarried. I also learned how to be flexible and how to pack bags and boxes really well. In Haiti, I felt sorry for these children who had to kick around milk jugs as soccer balls. It was sad when one little guy I was holding got down to eat a dusty fruit pit off the ground because he was hungry. It's so subtle, but I think that pity and guilt keep my eyes on stuff instead of on God because I equate stuff with blessings. I think a lot of us do. And you know what? Those kids down there weren't sad that they didn't have a ball to kick around. They were just having just as much fun kicking the milk jug. That's their normal. That little guy may have been hungry before he got his second of two meals of the day, but he wasn't starving. He was loving, and he, told, and he let me hold him. Really, if I think about it, are all of the things in suburban America better or even good? Sure, our children get food whenever they want, but we also have a childhood obesity epidemic. We have real sports equipment, like soccer balls, but we are so busy zooming around from place to place, place, to place in our convenient cars that we can easily get caught up in a cycle of busyness, not really ever spending quality time with those we love, or with God, for that matter. And we have so much cool stuff that we are in a constant state of distraction, not really connecting with anyone. Most of us feel self-sufficient and safe in what we can provide for ourselves. So if we can do it all on our own, what need do we have to trust God? 
I think that maybe with our monetary blessings come spiritual trials. And perhaps in Haiti, with their monetary trials, come spiritual blessings. I'm not saying that poverty is necessarily a good thing. There are a lot of trials that go along with it, especially when you call home a tin roof, dirt floor hovel. But is it the worst thing? Is wealth or convenience the best? So when I think back to the question, why was I blessed to have so much, I think I need to reevaluate the word blessed, not through my standards, but through God's. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is why I like the Fearless Campaign. It pushes me to give away money, and this makes me less self-sufficient, less focused on stuff, and I find myself trusting God more. And that is a blessing, too. On one of our afternoons at an orphanage in Haiti, I was sitting down with some little girls. We were just hanging out. And then a little, bit, little boy came out of one of the doors and started singing the chorus of a worship song that was familiar to me. And I just couldn't help but join in. And we all just sat there together and sang it over and over. I was struck by how wonderful this was, that these kids and I, coming from completely different experiences, completely different circumstances, were singing the same song, praising our Heavenly Father who blesses and connects us all. This was by far my favorite experience of the whole trip. As I end today, I would like to lead us all in this simple chorus as a reminder that even in our differences, we are all the same, that true blessings are spiritual. And maybe our friends down in Haiti are singing it right now, too. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, worship your holy name. My name is Katrina Lafoy, and this is my story. Thank you, Katrina. Uh, just to comment on Katrina's story, um, it's what happens to every one of us when we go on a pilgrimage. Every one of us come back and wrestle through and try and evaluate um, why am I so blessed and is this right? And the whole thing goes on. So thank you for sharing your soul on what's going on right now of you uh, within you. You know, six weeks after such an event, it still goes on with me inside of me, and my first time to Haiti was in 1989, and I still wrestle with it. And I've been quite a few places around the world and seen it all, and it goes through you. So, um, it's kind of a synergistic morning, folks. Um, Katrina's passage out of uh, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus out of Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7 even, um, 
is exactly what we're going to hear from, from Reverend Rustin Smith, our guest preacher this morning. Look around you and you'll see Rustin and Marcola Smith's DNA, their thumbprint on this church because they were with us long before any of this ever went on. Back in 1996 and 97 and 98, Marcola sang in the band and Rustin uh, played guitar and sang as well and helped form this church. And then they went on to a music career and eventually became a pastor, which is pretty much what all you know rock stars do is become pastors. <laughs> But Rustin uh, has always been a thinker, and he's always been brilliant. And he uh, is one of those sort of deep thinkers that is more prophetic and more poetic than many of us can even absorb in one sitting. And he brings that to us this morning. And he comes to share um, really more of himself as an artist and as this sort of deep, um, I, well, you'll see. What kind of thinker he is it's it's the sort of thing that um, not many of us really take a chance to understand and he'll bring it and make it very simple this morning and it's so very good and we are so thankful for Rustin and Marcola being back with us this morning he has a church by the way uh, down in Belton called Vox Church and they're getting ready to buy a building uh, God willing and so you know our hearts go out to them because we all know what that's like you know to be portable and not have your own place and how cool it is to actually get your own place 24-7 so isn't that really fun so we'll be praying for them over the next few weeks with bankers and this sort of deal and for their church and it is really great to have them with us and before Rustin comes up let me just dismiss the students to their classes you guys can go and do your thing and Rustin would you please join us Rustin Smith everyone Well, thank you, Dan, that, for that generous, uncalled-for generosity. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, I, I say that I do not often accept invitations to speak at other churches because I'm not often invited. So, uh, and certainly not invited back, so we'll see how this morning goes. I'm also very happy to contribute to your current series, How Should We Then Live?, at my home church, we're, we've been having a very similar series, trying to answer a very similar question, actually. I've been looking at Jesus' most famous teaching, as Dan said, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, uh, because, because there, at the end of that sermon, Jesus says that whoever hears his words and puts them into practice, it will be like building a life on an unshakable foundation. And that's what I want. And that's what you want. That's what we all want. That's what we're doing here. Um, so we're going to be interacting with Matthew 5, 8 this morning. And if you would be with me this morning, let's just start by reading this aloud. It'll be on the screen here. Matthew 5, 8, the words of Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So this is a teaching about sight and about seeing, and about who it is that perceives God. It's also a warning about the nature of sight, and of seeing, and of perceiving God, because as Mark Twain once said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> and I know I bring some assumptions to this announcement of Jesus that are unexamined, and so potentially wrong. And those assumptions present really quickly when I read this because 
hey, we're all achievers here. We all want to win. And we hear these words as a challenge from Jesus. And we say, we have in our mind, like, what is the gold medal here? The gold medal is seeing God. So how do we win? Pure in heart. Okay, check. Let's go. Let's do that. But I want to suggest that what comes into our minds when we hear this word pure or purity or pure in heart may not be what Jesus had in his mind. And in fact, for many of us, pure has come to mean simply the absence of immorality. Absence of immorality. And while purity can mean that, obviously, this is not what Jesus is talking about here. Further, I think that people not only associate the phrase pure in heart with moral rule following, but almost as a logical next step, they associate purity with the absence of having any fun. Are you with me? I mean, this is a blessing that, if we're honest, we aren't sure if we want. (laughs) Of all the things that I like to be called, this is not one of them. Oh, that Rustin, he's so pure. (laughs) You might as well say that I'm boring and that I'm simple-minded. It's very close to the blessing you may know, oh, bless his heart, right? And if you know any real Southerners, you you may already know that that's not a real blessing. (laughs) None of us really want to be that person. So pure as a word, it can be kind of a backhanded compliment. And worse, purity can be a a bit like a straitjacket. I mean, in, in some way, many of us have probably lived through painful experiences of failing to live up to moral expectations of our parents, of our social circle, or even of ourselves. And in some of our backgrounds, church has been no help in this. In fact, the moralism that many of us picked up from our various religious backgrounds was taught with this fearful eye toward the world out there. So stay pure, stay out of trouble uh, because of the threat of the, the big, dark, corrupt world. But for Jesus, this blessing about purity, about being pure in heart, is not that. So first, purity is not the absence of immorality. And second, purity is not distance from the world. Purity is not withdrawing from the secular world into a holy huddle, because that was an option in Jesus' day, and some people did that. Jesus did not do that. In fact, Jesus often entered the homes of those considered unclean. He hung out with the rough crowd. He was always in hot water for doing, for doing this. And the proper religious folks of the day, the moral folks, they found Jesus rather off-putting. And so might we. You can observe Jesus on the pages of the Gospels welcoming all the wrong people into the kingdom, the outsiders, the unclean, the impure, and the Beatitudes. He names them and blesses them and includes them. And this was shocking to the moral sensibilities of the day. In fact, there was a group of religious folks who were kind of a political lobby in those days, influential, wealthy, by all accounts, good men. They were known as the party of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' politic was built on this notion that if people would turn from their immorality, then their purity would set the stage for God to act on their behalf. If they could just make people behave and follow God's word, obey the word, then God would show up and rescue them. Yeah, sound familiar? I mean, that's us a bit. And and yet, ironically, it happens that Jesus reserves his most scathing, his most un-Jesus-like critique for this group of people. There's this intense encounter between Jesus and these Pharisees in John 9 where 
It's a remarkable chapter. Jesus heals the eyesight of a man who was born blind, and when the Pharisees find out about this, uh, they decide to investigate the healing. They discover that Jesus did this healing on the Sabbath, which is breaking a commandment, by the way, a fairly egregious sin. And this man who was healed goes around claiming that Jesus is from God, he's a prophet, he's a miracle worker, and that makes the Pharisees livid because their assumption was that a man born blind was a sinner and that God would never listen to a sinner because God would only have anything to do with the morally pure. Further, they can't believe that someone breaking the Sabbath, like Jesus, could be from God. So they threw this man out. They rejected Jesus. Jesus then hears about how the Pharisees worked this poor guy over, and so Jesus goes and finds him, because that's what Jesus does. And Jesus tells the man, I am the Son of Man, the, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah from God. And the man worships Jesus. It's a remarkable chapter. And then here's the kicker. It's in John 9, 39 through 41. Jesus said, For judgment I have come to this world, so that the blind will see... And those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What are we blind to? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Did you get that? For Jesus... It is the pride of the Pharisees. It's their claim to see clearly that actually makes them blind. It's what they know for sure that just ain't so. Their certainty that they see things as they are is the thing that makes them unable to see it all. A few years ago, I got fascinated with a strange medical condition called Anton Babinski Syndrome. Uh, sometimes when a person has a stroke or a head injury of some kind, it damages their occipital lobe, which causes physical blindness. But then the syndrome occurs when those who are officially blind continue to believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are capable of seeing. They continue to believe that they're not blind, even when presented clear evidence that they can't see. A neurologist described this, a quote, the, the patient often behaves and talks like he can still see, but will walk around bumping into objects that are plainly visible nonetheless. He will also start to describe people and objects that are around him. He thinks he knows what is around him, but is really completely wrong. The slang term for Anton Babinski syndrome is blindsight. Blindsight, the, the believing one believing to see when, in fact, one cannot see. <laughs> this essentially describes the condition of the Pharisees. They have what we might call spiritual blindsight. They believe they can see. They believe they can see what is right and wrong. They believe they can see what God is like, what matters most. But in fact, they don't see it all. In fact, it would be better if they were spiritually blind and knew that they were spiritually blind. If they knew they were blind, they'd be open to Jesus coming and healing their blindness. But because they don't believe that they are blind, they keep describing the world around them in ways that are not actually true. <laughs> and they keep walking around and bumping into things. And here they happen to be bumping into God. There's this old saying, there are none so blind as those who will not see. And perhaps none so blind as those who can't even entertain the notion that just maybe they don't 
see as well as they think. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes further to unpack what he's getting at in this beatitude about the pure in heart seeing God. It's in Matthew 6, 22 and 23. Jesus says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. This is about seeing. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now this idea was accepted physiology in Jesus' day. Back then, people actually thought that the human eye projected light outward to see an image and to, to capture the image. So if someone was blind, it was thought that the light in their eyes had simply gone out. So if you were blind, you were full of darkness. There's no light in you that enables you to see the world as it is. Now we know that light doesn't come out of the human eye. Light actually enters the eye. That's how we see. But Jesus isn't making a medical point here. He's making a point about what goes out from us rather than what comes into us. If what goes out from you is generous and sincere, then your life will be healthy and flourish. But if what goes out from you is stingy and critical or fearful, then your life will be unhealthy and will diminish. So having a healthy eye, according to Jesus, is all about a generous view of the world rather than a stingy view of the world. Now, pop quiz. Everybody awake? You doing all right? Can I get you anything while I'm up? Uh, this is easy. It's multiple choice. It's a 50-50 chance. Would you say that the Pharisees had A, a generous view of the world, or B, a critical view of the world? Yeah, you got it. You're, very, you're smart. Uh, they had a critical view of the world. That was the Pharisees. In fact, when they looked at a person who was poor, or displaced, or meek, or sick, or suffering, what they saw was a sinner. What they saw was someone who brought this upon themselves and therefore somehow deserved it. That God was somehow against them as evidenced by their misfortune. And this kind of critical, judgmental, condescending, self-congratulatory view of the world is precisely what Jesus calls blindness. Jesus called the religious leaders of his day blind guides. He, he went around saying, you know, it's like the blind leading the blind around here. And oh, that steamed them good. Uh, but then on the other side, Jesus says that a generous, hopeful, merciful, compassionate view of the world actually puts a person who has that outlook in a very different category. The first category is spiritual blindness. The second category is called being pure in heart. Pure in heart, who have the ability to look upon another person or upon a presenting circumstance and perceive God when others don't. It's the pure in heart who have the ability to perceive God when others don't. See, it's the, the causality in the beatitude is reversed by how Jesus teaches this everywhere else. We might think when we read this that if we are pure in heart, and we've already confessed our distorted image of what, that, what we think that means, if we're morally pure or if we distance ourselves from the sinful world, if we do that, then we will see God. But I wonder if what Jesus is really announcing here is that those who can see God, as a consequence, simply reveal that their heart is pure. 
more support for this comes from the word that Jesus uses for pure. It also means simply clean. So those who have a clean, undistorted, unagended, humble view of the world, those who don't filter what they see through all their biases and their entrenched opinions but are free to simply see what they see are ones who are open to seeing what God is up to right in front of them. It is most ironic that the most religious people in Jesus' day simply could not recognize Jesus as being the presence of God in their midst, while the most outcast, broken, sinful, even the physically blind, seemed to recognize him right away. <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who have a clean window to see through from their innermost parts, for they can perceive God's activity when others don't. As a kid uh, growing up in church, we used to sing this song that went like this. 12 men went to spy in Canaan. 10 were bad and two were good. Does anybody know this song? I, I think I must have grown up in a cult. We have one. We grew up in the same. You're with me. Would you like to sing it? No, no, me either. 12 men went to spy in Canaan. 10 were bad, two were good. What did they see when they got to Canaan? Ten were bad, two were good. Some saw giants big and tall. Some saw grapes in clusters fall. Some saw God was over all. Ten were bad, but two were good. Now, that song's a, about an Old Testament story of Joshua and Caleb being sent with ten other men to do reconnaissance in the land that God would give to God's people. And twelve men went, and twelve men saw the same land, and they all came back, and, and ten of them said, we cannot take this land. It is uninhabitable. In fact, the phrase they use is, it swallows those who live there. <laughs> I enjoy that. Uh, <laughs> It swallows those who live there. There are giants there, and they have fortified cities, and we're no match for them. But then the two, Joshua and Caleb, who saw the same land, who saw the same people, they reported, this land, <laughs> this land flows with milk and honey and the fruit of God's provision. And, and though our opponents are strong and their cities are fortified, nevertheless, we should go and take this land for we can certainly do it. Or we can certainly do it. And so 10 were bad and two were good. And they all saw the same thing. What made the 10 bad was how they saw. What made the two good was how they saw. See, it's not a matter of having a pure heart that causes one to see God. It's the ability to see God, to choose to trust that God is present and at work that reveals the clean window through which one is actually looking. And this isn't merely positive thinking or wishful thinking, or it's, it's not even really visionary leadership in, in the way that we might think of that in this strange age. This is about looking upon another person or, the, or a presenting circumstance and choosing to lay aside what we think we know and to humbly look for and to discern what it is that God is up to. The Apostle Paul talked about this ability to truly see as having the eyes of our hearts opened. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays for us 
the, the church, this impassioned, long, yearning, beautiful prayer. And in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, he prays, I, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. But remember, you may remember, Paul himself was of the party of the Pharisees. Paul was an extraordinary historical figure. If we did not know Paul from the pages of the Bible, we might well know him uh, as a philosopher or as a political leader of some kind. Paul was a brilliant, brilliant thinker, citizen of Rome, well-educated, high-achieving, fast-rising player in the ancient world. And yet, Paul was among those leaders who was spiritually blind. He had spiritual blindsight. And the story goes that the risen Jesus confronted Paul in a vision and actually struck him, get this, physically blind for a period. And it was in his physical blindness that Paul was able to humble himself and clean the window through which he saw the world and then reemerge with a new kind of sight, what then he called the eyes of the heart, spiritual sight, the ability to see what God is up to in any situation. And so Paul goes on to write in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What happened to Paul is that he learned that there were two ways to see. He, he could look upon the circumstances of his life with a judging, critiquing, complaining way of seeing. He could despair when he was hungry or broke, or he could just feel really great about things when he had everything he wanted. In other words, he could make himself the final judge of what is good or bad. But instead, he learned to see with a different lens, looking at things when they appear good or when they appear bad, and instead of judging them according to his own agenda, he learned to see God at work in both. The eyes of his heart were opened. And this is what Paul prayed for us. He prayed for us this ability to see the brokenness of others and not merely see sinners or competitors or threats to our security, but to see others and recognize that God is already at work in them. And he prayed for us the ability to meet challenges that present themselves to us and not despair or stress out <laughs> or to be overconfident and foolish, but to meet our lives humbly and with great confidence because we trust that God is at work, that God is directing our path, that we can see God, whether in want or in plenty. And in seeing God, our hearts are clean because the pure in heart see God. And seeing God is having a pure heart. And that is indeed the good life. That's a life that will last, that is blessed. There's a collection of Jewish writings from just after the time of Jesus called the Talmud. It has this great sentence that goes like this. We do not see things as they are. We see things as we are. We do not see things as they are. We see things as we are. And when I was in college, I, uh, this concept occurred to me in, in an art museum. I don't come from a 
particularly over, overly sophisticated background. I'm the kind of person who still kind of smirks when I go into the modern art section of the museum. I see a canvas that just seems to be splattered with paint, and I think, I'm in the wrong business. Like, I could be a famous painter. But that's not true. That's blindness. That's, that's ignorance. Um, it's like the story of a the young couple who goes to the Louvre in Paris to see the Mona Lisa, and they wait in line forever, and they finally get up to the painting, and when they see it, they think, I don't get it. <laughs> it's not such a big deal. Uh, she's not even that pretty. And this is a waste of our time. But here's the truth. The Mona Lisa has been considered a masterpiece for centuries. It's a marvel of artistic progress. One critic calls it, quote, the best known, the most visited, the most written about, the most sung about, the most parodied work of art in the world. And by our time in history, it's just a given that the Mona Lisa has earned its reputation as a masterpiece of art. In other words, when the young couple goes in to view the Mona Lisa, it's not the Mona Lisa that is on trial. They are. They don't get to judge the art. The art judges them. It judges their ability to discern and to understand and to appreciate what centuries of sophisticated, educated art experts have universally concluded. The art puts them on trial. And this is why I still go to the modern art section, because <laughs> I want to learn, I want to understand, I want to develop the sensibilities to appreciate what real artists already know, what good art is. And when I go, I know that it is not me examining the art, it's the art examining me. There was a book that came out a few years ago that explored this question. What does being wrong feel like? What does being wrong feel like? Do you know the answer? This is the answer. You don't have to read the book. I'll save you the money. <laughs> being wrong feels exactly like being right. <laughs> being wrong feels exactly like being right. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. Jesus says, it is my claim to see, my insistence that the way I see it is the only way it could possibly be, that actually leaves me blind. Because we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. Now here's how this plays out. Every difficult person in my life is a beloved child of God. That is reality. And so when I have to deal with them, they are not on trial. I am. Because how I see reveals what I see. And every uncertain future, beyond every important decision, that I face is completely in God's good care. There's nothing to worry about. Kingdom is not in trouble. And so my circumstances are never on trial. I am. Because how I see reveals what I see. And when you and I look upon Jesus, we come into a setting like this and, and we consider his life and his teaching, we may see a myth, a threat, certainly at times a moral bother, <laughs> or benignly a good teacher, perhaps a true prophet. But I suggest to you that it is not Jesus who is on trial. 
It is me, and it's you. So how should we then live? Well, we should then take these words and put them into practice. For Jesus says that if we do, it will be like building a life on an unshakable foundation. And so this is my prayer for us, for you, for me. This receptive humility, receptive humility that when we look at the world, when we look at others, when we look at our future, that we look for and see God. And if when we look, we see God at work, then we will be the pure in heart. And then Jesus says that we will indeed be blessed. That's a good life. That's a life that will last. So may this be for you and for me and always for this church. Amen. Would you all like to stand? And I would love to send us out of here with a blessing. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace, both now and forever. Amen. So let us go in peace.